Lord Jesus, it is so good to be in your presence today. The words of that song ring true this morning, that you are the true foundation. May we be a church that practices that, Lord, that we would put our whole trust in you and not in this world. And may we proclaim the glory of your salvation to the rest of the world around us, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, for this local body and the work that you are doing here. It is such an honor to see your people growing and maturing in their sanctification as we all grow together in unity and submission to you. We thank you for the most recent members added to this local body in the last couple of congregational meetings. We are honored, we are honored today to be able to baptize Reese in affirmation of her faith to you and to be able to state our covenant oaths to each other as a body of believers. As David declared in our upcoming Psalm today, we are an honored body to be able to be in your presence, O Lord. May dwelling in your house be all that we desire. We admit and confess, Lord, that all the trappings of this world often pull our sights away from you. Nothing else in this world deserves our attention, let alone our praise or worship. Give us strength by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to hold firm to the truth of your word and not to be drawn away by the temptations of this world. We continue to pray for those affected by the wildfires in Hawaii. As death tolls have continued to climb and damage is just now being assessed, we ask for your name to be proclaimed, Lord Jesus. May churches open their doors and the body be active in helping those in need. For those in this local body that have friends and family there, may you give them wisdom on how to support them and empathize with them and those affected so greatly. We pray this morning similarly for our sister churches in the areas of Africa and China. As those areas continue to struggle against political uncertainty and oppression, may your words spread freely. Help our brothers and sisters to hear the psalmist David and his resolve to stay faithful to you and your truth, even in the midst of terrible odds and oppression. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing here through this local body. Please use us as your tools to spread your gospel to the surrounding areas of the Willamette Valley. We thank you for our brother Hans and the work that he has put in to prepare for our teaching today. And may you open the hearts of your people now to hear your gospel message. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And open your Bibles up to Psalm 27. I very much enjoy weightlifting as one of my few hobbies. I know you can't probably tell. But the last few weeks, I have been excited to start enjoying it together with my sons. And it's been a fun thing to do to do it together and teach them the basics and then watch them take it on as their own. One of the topics we've obviously had to discuss is the topic of spotting the person who's weightlifting. Now, this is where another lifter assists you in heavy lifts to get you to a starting position, and then they're also there waiting to assist if you get into trouble or lift to a failure point. I'm not sure about other people who lift weights, but for me, even with the fact that I'm not lifting massive amounts of weight like others, it gives me a boost of confidence to know that I have someone spotting me, even if it's my two adolescent sons on either side of the bar. <laughs> now my confidence in being able to take on this challenge in front of me increases because they're there. And on those days where I am by myself in the gym, there's a noticeable difference in the confidence I have with the challenge of higher weight. There's a psychological difference. You see, it's in acknowledging my need for assistance that my confidence actually grows. 
It's not as if I can suddenly lift more on the days where there's a spotter. My biology doesn't change. It's a confidence in my spotter, actually, not myself, that they are the one that is there to give me the strength and protection I need to take on this additional challenge. And so it's in acknowledging my need for assistance that my confidence grows. Maybe outside the weight room, this doesn't make much sense to our independent minds and hearts as adults. But we definitely get this as children. I was watching at a pool recently as a mother coaxed her very young child who could barely walk and was also in a life vest and floaty arms. She was coaxing him to jump into the pool. Now, try as she might, the child would not jump to her in the water from the edge of the pool. It wasn't until the mother put out a hand and the child grasped it that the child then had enough confidence, not in himself, but in his mother, to jump into the water. You see, in acknowledging his need for help, his confidence in that source of help grew, and so he was able to take on the giant leap of faith, if you will, or the challenge in front of him. Now, as we grow and individuate and become independent, this truth begins to fade. We think we are self-reliant. We lie to ourselves all the time. After all, our entire job as we reach adolescence and into adulthood is to leave the nest and become self-sufficient, especially in our American West Coast Oregon pioneer mentality. And now we see it in our society today where kids don't leave the nest, they just stay in the nest, but they individuate anyway and become rebellious to their parents. Either way, we forget this need that we have. But what you will find as you look at a lot of the brokenness of mankind is that as this runs us, uh, ruins us, we don't realize we need the Lord. We don't realize that we are actually needy, so we become needy in all the wrong sources of fulfillment and strength. We look to things that are not going to actually fulfill that need. And you see, at our core, we are designed, designed to be dependent on something else, someone else. First, we need the Lord, our creator, and then we need his people and the family into which he has adopted us. And admitting this in its appropriate order helps us grow and mature and become healthy as we grow. This idea of need is at the core of the gospel as well. It's at the core of our faith as Christians. When God saves us, he opens our eyes through the blinders of self-sufficiency so that we might see that we cannot live without him. This was the fatal flaw and mistake in Eve's logic, that she, that she and Adam could be self-sufficient. And so this idea is core to our walk with Christ. It's core that we remember this idea. And we can see this perhaps most clearly in the Lord's interaction with his people as he delivers his law to them there in the wilderness. He literally was their provider. They would have died without the water he produced from the rock, without the manna he produced every morning. But there's even an example of this idea in the law that he gave them and the requirements that he asked them to fulfill. It was given to them for their good to remind them that they were dependent upon him. Look at this law of the Sabbath in Exodus 31, for example. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people." 
Now, you may have missed it there because it's so quick, but notice why they're keeping it, what the purpose was. The requirement for a day of rest from work was not simply for mental health reasons, nor simply for a spiritual exercise. It was given to us to remind us that we cannot work our way into relationship with the Lord, nor can we work our way into properly reflecting his image. It is the Lord who makes us holy. The Lord alone justifies us, makes us right with him. The Lord alone sanctifies us. It is in resting in Christ that we are saved. Confidence in the Lord increases as we admit our dependence upon him. And this is the truth that we are considering this morning. The confidence in the Lord increases as we admit our dependence upon him. As we look at Psalms 27 and 28, we will see two psalms that proclaim this truth. In them, we will see the author, King David, as he speaks aloud, sings aloud, in a kind of feedback loop to himself. First, he will boldly proclaim his confident trust in the Lord. But then, as if lacking confidence, he will acknowledge his need of the Lord's deliverance. And that will once again cycle back to boldly proclaiming his confident trust in the Lord. It will seem, as we read through this at moments, as if David is trying to convince himself of the Lord's trustworthiness to be a source of his confidence. But then his confidence will grow as he admits his need for the Lord, because in so doing, he will remind himself of who the Lord is. I hope and pray that this resonates with many of us this morning. I find that the same is true for us. The enemy will lie to us. Our own feelings will lie to us blatantly or maybe subversively. And we will find ourselves often in the walk with Christ, doubting whether the Lord is trustworthy and if we can have confidence in him. But when we do as David is doing here before us, and we proclaim the truth of who the Lord is, our hearts and minds are reframed into the appropriate truth that God is Lord and we are not, and that he is trustworthy and faithful and good. And we are reminded that our lack of confidence in him is often our own doing in believing the lie that we can exist on our own without him and he should serve our lordship. If we are his, though, by his grace in those moments, those who are his will quickly recognize that he does not exist to serve our purposes, but we exist to serve his. And when this truth is understood, we rightly lose the inappropriate confidence that he will do as we please. And we gain the appropriate confidence in the truth of his character as our perfect shepherd. Today, we will acknowledge this through the ministry of the word. And then we will proclaim it through the communal acts of baptism and communion and the common unity that draws us together as members of the church. You guys get a lot of participation points today. You'll participate in the listening and hearing of God's word to let it inform and change your heart. And then you will be the ones who proclaim your love for one another through the ordinances and as we welcome new members into the church. And so united as the Lord's body this morning, we will proclaim that confidence in the Lord increases as we admit our dependence upon him. Amen? So let's begin in Psalm 27 and read it together as a body. 
If you're in the ESV, this will sound familiar. Some of the other translations might have things slightly adjusted, but the same truth. So we're going to read beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see this morning is confident trust in the Lord. Confident trust in the Lord. Now, because this theme weaves its way throughout both Psalms as a kind of emotional feedback loop, the Psalms are not as easily unpacked as if in an obvious structure. That's why I have it kind of broken up there for you. These two themes flow throughout them, but the first is that we see confident trust in the Lord. Now, to get the full picture of this, we need to realize that historically, traditionally, Psalms 23 through 28 have been known as going together in one unit. This will show us that the imagery that we get from the individual Psalms of this section should interplay with one another. If you have time this week, I would highly recommend you go back and read them all together, 23 through 28, and you will start to see it. It starts with the, the favorite uh, Psalm that we have of the Lord is our shepherd in Psalm 23. And then it goes all the way through to 28 that we're going to read today. Now, for example, Psalm 23 speaks of the Lord as our shepherd. Psalm 28 finishes with, at the very end, Psalm 28, verse 9, be their shepherd and carry them forever. And that thematic connection is present here in Psalm 27 as well. In the parallelism of verses 1 through 3, the picturesque poetry of Psalm 23 comes through. There the author is walking through the valley of the shadow of death and feels the presence of the wolves that want to devour him. Here, that same author, David, is saying that it is the Lord, Yahweh, that is the light that he needs in that valley of the shadow of darkness to see his enemies. 
Yahweh is the light that David needs to know where to step to avoid destruction. The Lord is his very salvation from the destruction he fears. And so he can confidently say, even in the midst of his enemies, whom shall I fear? The Lord is also his stronghold. The Hebrew word here means fortress. God is the fortress of his life. When you are in an impregnable fortress, you don't fear who is outside the walls. In fact, David poetically illustrates, when those enemies metaphorically surround me to destroy me as wolves to a lamb, he says, it is they who will be tripped up and harmed. If they surround me as an enemy army does a fortress, my heart will not fear and I will be confident. It is almost as if he is having to convince himself a bit here. It seems that way, especially at the end of Psalm 27 in verses 13 and 14. We just read that again. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We read that and we think, there's that confident trust. And so then he has to also speak to himself, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now this is both a command to those listening with him in worship, but first and foremost, it's a command to himself. Brothers and sisters, if you've not seen it already in the Psalms, it is part of the natural walk of a Christian. What just happened? Huh. It is the natural walk of a Christian to do what psychology has termed self-talk. But this is a self-talk that does not come from your own lordship or your own desire to simply reframe your reality just to have a different, equally unrealistic reality. It is an effort of reframing that is based off the truth of God's word and it alone. It is based on God's character, God's will, and God's plan for his people. Part of why we need to be immersed in God's word and God's people is to give us the basis we need for this conforming of our minds to God's truth. Friends, the saddest thing in the world is a Christian who thinks that they can grow in their knowledge of Christ without the word of God. All you're doing is growing in idolatry of self. Without the word, we are stuck in our own heads, which is a scary place to be, especially since we will be prey for satanic lies. So we need to encourage one another to be in the word regularly so that we can conform ourselves to his truth, not our own. And perhaps this is why David asks what he does in verse 4. Look at it again. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David is here talking about the eternal abode of God, the, the place where God dwells, but we must remember that the heavenly reality is pictured in an earthly reality of the temple of God. For the temple, in its various forms, is the meeting place of heaven and earth, God and his people. For David, this was the tabernacle. For his son Solomon, and many generations thereafter, it was the temple building in various forms. For those who saw Christ, he was himself the meeting place of the divine and the human. And for those after his enthronement and pouring out of his spirit, such as you and I, it is among the gathered people of God as an assembly of worship. It is here that we find his temple, the meeting place of heaven and earth. Now, if we wanted just teaching or communion or music or tradition or symbolism, we could find it elsewhere in many other pursuits. But there is something about the gathering of the local church based in God's word, based in God's ordinance, 
and the worship of the God of the Bible that causes us to reset our minds and reset our hearts to conform ourselves to his truth. Regular participation as part of this temple is truly a necessity in the life of the Christian. David begs that God would keep him in the midst of his temple. How often we forget what a blessing it is to be in the midst of his temple. Now David reiterates the truth of God's protection and his own trust in that same salvation in Psalm 28, 6 through 7. Look there with me. 28, 6 through 7. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. We see here again David's confident trust in the Lord. No matter the surrounding circumstances, David is able to say honestly, I am helped. My heart exults and so I give thanks to the Lord. For any of us who have been in difficult circumstances, we automatically turn this into a kind of prosperity gospel. If I have enough trust, then the Lord will help me and solve my problems or fix my circumstances. If my circumstances aren't fixed, well, then, because God's good, I just must not have enough trust. Got to try harder. Friends, this is a false gospel. It's a lie. It's the farthest thing from the truth. We can look at the life of David and see that this was not how it happened to him. And we can look at the history of the people of Israel and see this is not what happened to them. This is the problem with a false gospel that says, well, if you just experience happiness, then you know you have Jesus. And when that happiness fades, you must be in sin. It's a horrible theology of suffering that so many Christians are trapped under and enslaved to. The reality is, is suffering occurs because this world is locked in sin. Sometimes it is our own doing, and oftentimes it is Satan's doing, or the results of living in a sinful world. And so oftentimes our experience is this false prosperity gospel, is it not? We believe that we trust God, have confidence in him, but then the weight of our circumstances starts to put dents in our trust and confidence. Either God's not good, or maybe this whole trusting God thing isn't, cracked up, isn't all it's cracked up to be. C.S. Lewis provided a wonderful image for us to understand what is actually going on in these circumstances. When we encounter difficulty or enemy persecution or even just experience the rebellious world around us, it is as though we find ourselves in an enclosed dark shed. But in that darkness, we see a small hole in the roof that allows a pinpoint beam of light to enter the darkness. One commentator continues the image by describing Lewis's metaphor this way, he says, it is two quite different things to look at the beam of light and how it interacts with the dark, illuminating only a small part of the shed, or to step into the light and look along the beam to its source. Waiting for God, trusting in God, is like standing in the dark, but looking along the beam of light that comes from God. Knowing the source of light gives us confidence that outside the darkened shed that describes this world and our lives, light bathes the whole landscape. Light will not be overcome by dark, but will vanquish it. I love that. Brothers and sisters, too often we sit in the corner of the darkness 
asking God to bend his ways to come to us as we sit there in the dark. But it's in admitting where we are at and the darkness that surrounds us and going to the Lord that we will grow in confidence at his power. And we will grow in assured hope that his light will one day overcome the darkness that surrounds us. And it is that crawling to the light, metaphorically, and crying out to God that we see as the second prominent theme in these psalms. For in fact, we don't do the work at all. We don't crawl. We don't strive. It's simply in admitting and acknowledging that we need the light. We need the Lord that his deliverance comes. We see that acknowledgement of need for the Lord's deliverance. We see this in what David is saying here throughout the rest of the, the, the text in these two psalms, acknowledgement of the need for the Lord's deliverance. There are a few clues in these two psalms, that there, there are a few clues in these th- psalms that they were originally authored in the context of David's life, but then they were also most likely held in a special place of worship by later exiles returning from Babylon to rebuild the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Let's read 27, 4 through 6 again, for example. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord." Verse 4 speaks very much of the temple of the Lord and the desire to be in it. But then David uses Exodus imagery in verses 5 through 6 as the statement of God's salvation and protection is there as if they're wandering in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Israel was completely dependent upon the assurance of God's presence as displayed in the tabernacle at their center as they escaped Egypt. This same imagery would speak beautifully to the predicament in which the exiles coming from Babylon found themselves. They would have very much been a people in exile moving toward their destination, yet unsure as to when they would be fully protected in the walls of the temple with God's presence. They had a yearning and a desire to be there in the temple, but they felt as though they were in the wilderness. A second part that backs this idea that was used by the exiles as they returned is how easily they would have been able to procure as their own statements, statements 28, 2 through 5. Take a look there at verses 2 through 5. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. They want to lift their hands towards God's sanctuary, but they're finding themselves dragged off with the wicked of their own generation. And what is it that characterizes the wicked? It's people who are in covenant, supposedly, the Old Testament covenant. But what does it say? They speak peace with their neighbors as if they're in covenant, but evil is in their hearts. There's this bitterness and this idolatry that occurs that separates them from the true covenant followers of Yahweh. And because of this lack of wholeheartedness towards God and his people, God is dragging them off into exile. And so the faithful few are saying, please don't let this be the case. And so this would be a cry that would resonate with them. 
for the faithful followers of Yahweh that were calling their countrymen to repent prior to the invasion and exile to Babylon. And it would be something that would be used all the way through exile and even after. They needed and wanted the confidence and trust in Yahweh that he would not forsake them and that his promises would come to pass. But to gain that confidence, they needed to first admit their need for the Lord's deliverance. And for David, as he wrote this, it was similar. He had trust, yes, but that trust would fade. And so he would admit and acknowledge his need for God's protection and salvation. Does this sound familiar, friends, as you walk with the Lord? Our trust has moments where it's at the height, but then it wanes when life overwhelms us. If we find ourselves in that place, we must immediately go back to the Lord to admit that we need him and that we have forgotten that because, friends, trust of the Lord, faith in the Lord itself is a gracious gift from God. It is not something we can manifest in ourselves. And so if you find it waning in your life, the Lord is the one to go to to ask for his gracious gift of faith. Why didn't he make it? so that we could just admit our need once during that moment we gave our lives to him when we threw that pine cone in the fire at grade school camp, right? And then walk in strength of faith from that point forward. Why wasn't it a one-time gift that we just get to use for the rest of our lives like a jelly of the month club or something? Well, because that would be contrary to his nature and contrary to the nature of the reality of salvation. For it was sin in the first place that made us believe we could use him leave him, and operate independently of him. But it is is his gracious salvation that illuminates to us our constant need for him. So friends, when our trust wanes and disappears, it is not that his power has failed, but simply a reminder of the truth that he is God and we are his needy creations that are created to acknowledge our great dependence upon him. This is not some form of relational brokenness or abuse or codependence or narcissism or any of the things that we would term term it or that the world terms our God. This is the reality of a benevolent creator and a dependent creation. To say this relationship is wrong would be similar to saying that a baby admitting its need for its mother is wrong. Friends, it's just reality an independent God who needs no one and is self-sufficient and a dependent creation. And so when our faith or our trust wanes, it is natural, good, and right to crawl back into the light of the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. How I need you. Every hour, every moment, every second, I need you. When we are in those moments where fear creeps in, Our trust disappears and we find ourselves surrounded by darkness or sin or trial. It can often feel like God has moved, or as we've discussed a few times already in the Psalms, that God has disappeared. It feels like God is playing a round of divine hide-and-go-seek, as if he's a mean older brother, as if he's a trickster God who gets pleasure from making us find him when he is hidden, laughing at us. But this is a very wrong perspective that casts a shadow on what David says in 27. Take a look at 27, 7 through 12 again. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. 
My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, or you, or you, uh, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. To seek God here is not a matter of having to find him as if he has hidden himself. Friends, we know, and David knew exactly where God is, enthroned above his people. He never changes. So it is not wandering through the dark as if blind, trying to find our way to him. No, it is a focused pursuit of him based on what his truth says. It is to step into the way of obedience that he has already given us by admitting that we need his spirit's help in changing us. It is to commit ourselves to him as he has already done to us, to commit wholeheartedly and specifically. We know this because elsewhere in scripture, to seek after false gods is not to go blindly looking after them, but it's to commit to them, to give allegiance to them. And that is something our hearts do naturally. We don't have to crawl around looking for him. To seek after Yahweh, then, is to commit in covenant to him as the only God we are dependent upon and worship. And this is a response to the grace he's given us, the covenant love, the hesed he's already given us. We simply accept and say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. And so we see David reminding himself here that it is actually his own heart that leaves Yahweh, not the other way around. He says, cast me not away. That's his experience. But then he reminds himself, wait, hold on. The Lord is not like earthly relationships that might abandon me. He says this in the very next verse. It says, he will take me in even when my own mother and father will not. And that's why he's the God of my salvation. David is reminding himself of the truth, even though his heart says a different one. David's plea for deliverance becomes for the Lord to overwhelm him with his presence. This is what he says when he says, hide not your face from me. The face of the Lord is to ask for his presence. He wants to walk in the way that God declares because if given to himself, If the Lord does not save David, David knows he will automatically fall to the ways of evil and to his adversaries. And so his desire to see God's face is an acknowledgement that if he is to stand in the Lord's presence and follow the Lord's ways, it is the Lord who will need to make it so. Otherwise, it will be God giving him over to his sin and deserve destruction at the hands of the evil that surrounds him. And friends, notice how this flows so perfectly into 28, 1 through 5. Look there again with me. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me. In other words, if you don't intervene, if you don't stop my nature, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord. And so David then finishes Psalm 28 
with praise to God because he has seen and known that the Lord has not abandoned him. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield in my heart trust. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. For David still, as he wrote this psalm, praises Yahweh, even in the midst of everything that he's encountering. Brothers and sisters, it is by the very worship we give that we have proof that God is covenantally faithful to us. For without him, he would not be, we would not be able to utter a word or a syllable of praise to him. Those that are not his, they eventually fall to the false gospel they have sought after. And rather than praise on their lips for the Lord, there is cursing against the one true God. And so David gives praise that God has delivered him from the darkness within and outside of himself. And he gives thanks. And to conclude... These psalms, David then declares the summarizing truth and prays that it would be for all God's people. Look at the very last verse there, verse 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. We see these two themes interweaving again here, confident trust in the Lord and acknowledgement of need for the Lord's deliverance. We are not saved, friends, for the singular purpose that we get to go to the good place when we die. We are not saved for the singular purpose that our life will have present meaning and direction and purpose. We are saved into a people so that we might be made holy and pure in reflection of God's perfect nature. We are not saved out of the darkness and exile around us so that we can escape it, but rather we are saved to be that beam of light within it, pointing those around us to God's goodness. By being those who rely on the Lord and declaring our need for his deliverance and our trust in his goodness, we are clearly stating a truth that the world needs to hear. For the false gods and demons that they serve are worthless. The prophet Isaiah pointed out that the false gods that the world in darkness seeks after are so powerless and lifeless that they have to be carried around. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Friends, the God we serve did not come to be carried around or served himself, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so David prays for this. Save your people. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Friends, we cannot save ourselves. The false gods of this world at the temptation of Satan has these false gods, they cannot save us. Only God the Father, the Lord, can save us through the sacrifice of his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can, by faith, acknowledge our need for him by his grace.
We can, by faith, accept his invitation into his covenant love and be his people, all by his gracious gift. And then as we walk with him in our regular reliance upon him, we can recognize the confidence we have in him so that we can boldly say, like David, since the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? What shall I fear? Since the Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? For yes, in our humanity, we are all helpless sheep. We are prey for the wolves that want to devour us or the ready victims for the dark valleys of death through which we pass. But because our God came as a pure lamb who gave his life as a sacrificial substitute for our own, and because he was victorious over death three days later, we can now know that he is our shepherd and can carry us in his loving and protective arms for all eternity, no matter what we face, even and especially death itself. The fullness of this truth is seen in the perfect shepherd, Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross and resurrection three days later, and his ascension into heaven, we have been given all that we need to have proof that we have a perfect shepherd who will never abandon his people and will protect us for all eternity. By his grace, he has plucked us out of the thicket, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the mouth of the wolf, and he has carried us and made us his own, all by his power, all by his grace. Any semblance of confusion about who God is and whether or not we should be afraid to come to him, well, friends, it was removed in Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews said in our second reading today, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Apostle Peter reiterates this clearly in his first letter. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friend, if you are here today and you have not returned to the God who created you and died for your sins that separated you from him, then today he is giving you a chance to do so. Right where you sit right now, you can acknowledge your need for him and acceptance of his salvation and protection, for he has saved you and made you his own. It is simply yours to accept by faith in his goodness. And if he has saved you, he has then also called you into a local body of believers as a local expression of his great, greater global and universal church through all time and space. And if that is you, I or one of the other elders would love to talk with you after the service today about walking with Christ as part of his church. And it is as a local body, because all of this is true, that we will today acknowledge our need for his deliverance in a number of ways. And so the last thing that we do today on the basis of the truth that we have seen in these two psalms is today we acknowledge our need for his deliverance. And we will do so in the fullness of the means that the Lord gave to his New Testament church as ordinances or commands of Christ that declare our reliance upon him for justifying grace and sanctifying grace. 
We, like those Jews returning from the Babylonian exile, are a people who are of the Lord's kingdom. But we find ourselves in a foreign enemy land, and the darkness that surrounds us does not cause us to fear or lose our faith. It causes us to be reminded of who God is and who we are. In that same first letter to Peter, of Peter to the church, he said this, he said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The world around us is immersed and consumed with rebellion against its creator. But we, by God's grace alone, not of our own works or merit, have been called out of that sin and into the glorious light of God's truth and salvation. And so we acknowledge our need for him, and simultaneously we proclaim our confidence in him through the ordinances of baptism and communion. And we do so as a designated people who have been called out and set apart by God's spirit in grace. And so first, in a moment, the grade schoolers will join us to take part in what we are doing. Then we will re remind ourselves of God's truth as we speak and teach one another with the truth of what we are doing today. We will speak together out of the New City Catechism, the truth about baptism and communion. And then we will declare together that we are a set-apart people, the universal church across all time and space, saved by Christ as his bride, his temple, and his body. But because we are finite beings, we cannot see across all time and space, and so God blesses us with local expressions of the universal church in which we can participate in this greater body as members of one local body. You see, you are baptized into a church, into a people, as a member in that people. It is simultaneous. We are not baptized to just float in the global church, but to be part of a group of people. And so we will do this by having the newest members of our church body stand and declare by oath that they belong to the church and we belong to them as one body. And then we will have the blessing of hearing from our newest junior member of the church, Reese Johnson, as she declares her testimony and is baptized into the church. And specifically, this local body is a symbol of the spiritual work of Christ that he's already performed within her heart, that her old nature has been crucified with Christ and her new nature has been raised with Christ and is growing within her earthly vessel day by day. And finally, we will then, as a community of believers, eat at the table of our great shepherd the symbols of his body and blood that, we were given in our, uh, that were given in our place to save us from our sin and the just wrath that awaits a rebellious creation. In all of this, dear friends, hi kids, come on in. In all of this, dear friends, we will do what the church was created to do. We will proclaim Jesus' glory by acknowledging our need for his deliverance. So friends, are you ready? Brothers and sisters, are you ready?